worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My fellow cardio nerds, we have a very special episode for you today. We are so honored to be joined by our good friend, Dr. Richa Gupta from Vanderbilt University. Richa earned her medical degree at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and remained in Baltimore for internal medicine residency training at the Osler program with us. She went on to Vanderbilt for cardiology fellowship and will be staying there for advanced heart failure training. I'm so glad to have had Richa in my residency firm or family or Harry Potter house. One thing that is very clear about Richa is that she is just a natural leader. She is such a magnet and so effortlessly brings people together. I have a bet with myself that she will become a department chair or division head or program director or some other leadership position. So Richa, thanks for being with us here today. And I really hope you'll think of me when I'm looking for jobs down the road. Aw, shucks, guys. I don't deserve all this praise, but thank you. And the same can be said for you all as well. Oh, my gosh. And guys, speaking of the leadership, I have to tell you guys something that I haven't told anyone before. When I started residency orientation back in 2014, I was completely overwhelmed with imposter syndrome, and that was really crimping my positive vibes. I vividly remember that Richa and another co-resident named August Dietrich took the lead with all the icebreaker stuff that was freaking me out and totally created a milieu of fun, collegiality, and an incredible air of inclusivity. She really is a natural leader, and I agree with you, Amit, on all of that, what you said. She's just going places, and we're just so excited to have you join us today. Well, that sounds like Richa, all right? Richa, tell us, what's in store for us today? Well, I am very excited for this episode. I will be joined by Dr. Jessica Houston, who is an Advanced Heart Failure Fellow here at Vanderbilt. Together, we have the privilege of learning about heart transplant directly from Dr. Joanne Lindenfeld who is the director of the Vanderbilt Heart Failure and Transplant Program. Friends, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. Hello to our listeners. My name is Richa Gupta, and I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, planning on pursuing a career in advanced heart failure and transplantation. We are so excited to discuss the nuts and bolts of the heart transplant process with our expert today. Before introducing her, I'd like to first introduce a colleague who's here with me, Dr. Jessica Houston. Dr. Houston is currently in the midst of a busy advanced heart failure year here at Vanderbilt. She is an incredible clinician and researcher. She served as our chief fellow last year, and from a clinical and research standpoint, has an interest in all things related to the right ventricle. She also happens to be my dear friend and someone I really consider a life coach. Jess, I think you and I both agree that we are lucky to be in training at an institution that is really at the forefront of heart transplantation. We're one of the two busiest heart transplant centers in the world and did a whopping 109 transplants last year. What this means for us is the opportunity to learn from each of these patients. What it also means is that we're surrounded by experts with a wealth of knowledge. Indeed, Richa, and thanks for the introduction. Speaking of experts, I'd like to introduce our expert for today's segment. We are here with Dr. Joanne Lindenfeld, Director of Heart Failure and Heart Transplantation at Vanderbilt Heart and Vascular Institute. 
She is the past president of the Heart Failure Society of America, serves on the editorial boards of numerous journals, including Jack, Jack Heart Failure, and JHLT. She's a member of the AHA, ACC, HFSA Heart Failure Guideline Writing Committee, and was previously chair of the HFSA Practice Guidelines for the 2006 and 2010 Guidelines. In addition to this, she's been an investigator in a number of large-scale clinical trials, including the COAP trial most recently. We could go on about her accomplishments, but even beyond them, she is an incredible mentor, teacher, role model, and a pleasure to learn from and work with. Legend has it that at the University of Colorado, she won the Resident Teaching Award so many times they banned her from consideration. Dr. Lindenfeld, you have been one of the pioneers of modern practices in cardiac transplantation and have helped spearhead efforts to expand the donor pool with the utilization of hep C positive donors. We at Vanderbilt and the heart failure community as a whole have learned so much from you. We are excited to talk to you today about the nuts and bolts of heart transplantation process. Thanks, Jess, and thanks, Risha. It's a pleasure to be here today. Let's get started with our first question for you, Dr. Lindenfeld, which has to do with the organ allocation process, which is dictated by an organization called UNOS, or the United Network for Organ Sharing. The process has recently changed and was designed with the goal of more equitably allocating organs to patients on the wait list. Can you outline some of the recent changes in the UNOS allocation system and the ways in which it's changed the entire VAD transplant process? I can certainly try. It's a complex system, and I think the old system worked pretty well. It's an attempt to really provide the most people with organs. But the problems with the old system were that not all the sickest patients were being transplanted. In addition, there were a large number of exceptions for the various statuses for transplantation. So rather than being in a specific category, people gained an exception. So the idea of the change in allocation was to go from the old system, which characterized people as 1A, 1B, or 2, with 1A being the sickest requiring mechanical support, 1 being a lower level of illness, for instance, those patients who had LVADs, whether or not they had complications. And then status 2, all the patients who were waiting from home without any devices or without any uh, temporary devices or inotropes or anything else. So the new system took a long time, received a lot of public comment, and transferred to a system that's now, instead of categories 1A, 1B, and 2, has six categories. Category 1 is patients on ECMO or on patients who cannot be discharged with their mechanical circulatory support devices, and also patients who have life-threatening arrhythmias that are not able to be suppressed adequately. Then the second tier is another tier of non-dischargeable people or patients with refractory ventricular tachycardia fibrillation, and total artificial hearts. Those are the top two categories. Below that, then, are people who have complications of LVADs, but the LVADs are just functioning, and patients on multiple inotropes, etc. Then the fourth category is more of a lower category, which includes all the LVADs without a complication. And then there's category five and category six that are even lower status. So again, this was designed to really improve the allocation of organs. And we don't know yet. This only started in October of 2018. So what we hope is that it will improve the allocation of organs. It will be fair and get those to the sickest patients and will be associated with the need for fewer exceptions. A recent report suggested that the mortality was actually higher in the newer system. But it's really too early, I think, to assess. And in a response to that data being presented, was a clear outline of why perhaps reporting the data so early was was just a bit too early and may not be correct. And I think we'll see that all played out. It's important with these things that involve everyone, providers uh, and our patients, that we make sure that we get the answer right. And so we're going to have to wait a little bit more to see how this policy 
will help us in whether or not it will indeed get uh, transplants to the sicker patients. The one thing I think that was a concern going into the new allocation scheme was that if we say the sickest patients, for instance, the patients requiring ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, we know those patients don't have quite as good results as other patients. So if we do a lot more patients on ECMO, will we prevent the really good results we've had in the past? That is, will we have worsened mortality? And we probably will have a little bit. It depends on how many patients will be on ECMO. The other concern, of course, is that people would do ECMO to have their patients go up the list and have a heart transplant sooner. So I think we'll have to see how that plays out. The early data that was presented in the Journal of Heart-Lung Transplant suggested that there was a higher mortality. But again, I think that a letter of the editor by Alan Anderson and others at the University of Chicago suggested that it's just too early to really be sure. And I think most centers are not seeing a huge increase in mortality. So I think we're going to have to see yet whether or not the new system really gets hearts to, in large numbers to sicker patients and decreases the number of exceptions that we have. It's interesting that you mentioned the concern that people would put patients on ECMO in order to move them up the list. Recognizing the changes in allocation, how do you think it's affected our recipient selection and our practice getting patients ready for transplant? Has it changed who we send to VAD and who we try to send direct to transplant? We have to be thoughtful, I think, about uh, as, as we watch this new system in progress. I think we all now understand that, for example, a large patient who has a type O blood type, if we put an LVAD in place and they have no complications with the LVAD, they may never be transplanted. They will drop to status 4, whereas in the past they would have been 1B. So they'll have some a short period of time, but they may not get transplanted. So then we have to think about... Do we transplant them? Do we try to do other things that will give them some more time to wait safely and get a heart transplant? There's a number of those things that, that we all have to work out, and some of them, too, will be more important in places that wait longer for donor organs than places that have a short wait period. A lot of this won't make very much difference if your wait period is 30 days, but if your wait period is 75 days or 80 days, then it will make a difference. So I think we're all sorting those things out individually. But for most places, I think it has changed the dynamics of a large person who is O blood type getting an LVAD and waiting a much longer period of time. Are there any other considerations or attributes that alter your thinking when you discuss a potential transplant candidate, like PRAs or social factors or history of substance abuse? Those are a very large number of factors. When we, uh, as you know, when we evaluate a patient, we evaluate for two things. We evaluate to make sure that they're sick enough that it would be warranted to take the risk of either an LVAD or a heart transplant or both in sequence. And if there's anything else we could do to improve their prognosis short of that kind of therapy. And then we do the rest of the evaluation to determine if they're likely to have a good outcome. Because patients who aren't likely to have a good outcome, we probably don't want to do these things. And I think it, it goes without saying that we are using a, a scarce resource in heart donors. And only a, a modest number of people, maybe as many as 3,500 per year, in the past it's been less than that, uh, will get a heart transplant. So we have to be very careful in how we use the, use the organs. And there's this balance between wanting to do the sickest patients and wanting to have a successful transplant in the largest number of patients. But of course, so for the first thing, we evaluate, are they sick enough? And for that, we use all sorts of things like ejection fraction, like their ability to exercise. We use VO2 sort of as a standard everywhere. Fortunately, the VO2 data was all done in an era where most of the patients did not have defibrillators. And many of those patients in Donna Mancini's original study actually didn't have ICDs and high percentage died of sudden cardiac death. So whether or not that's still the right standard is uncertain. But we use the size of the ventricle. The left ventricular end diastolic dimension is actually a better measure of outcomes than is the ejection fraction. 
And we use a number of other things in addition to their exercise capacity to determine if they're really ready for a transplant. Then we have to say, okay, will they have a good result? And those kinds of things, number one, probably first and foremost, is the patient able to comply with a complex level of medical therapy? So do they have the help they need to get back and forth? That's support and caregivers. Uh, are they able to take their medicines adequately? Do they understand their medications? Are they able to participate in their care uh, and do those things? Because if they can't take their medications regularly, then they're not going to have a good outcome. So those social and psychiatric factors are really important. And then a number of other things. What is their renal function? What is their uh, What are their pulmonary pressures? Do they have irre- some irreversible pulmonary hypertension? Those are all the things that go into deciding, number one, are you sick enough to require this therapy to, make, to justify it? And number two, do you have anything that will prevent you from having a good result? Thank you for that overview of uh, the important recipient factors that we think about in choosing patients that are appropriate for a heart transplant. Um, how about donors? So when you get a call about a potential donor... Is there a mental checklist that you go through? And then this is kind of a two-part question. So what, what if you have a donor that isn't perfect, that's kind of marginal? What are the ways that you try to determine if that donor heart is usable? Donor assessing donors is probably the single hardest thing we do because we often do it in the middle of the night at a distance. And the data that we have to assess the donor may not always be adequate. Things have improved in the last several years where we now often can look at the echo ourselves. But we may not have all the information we need. First of all, the younger the donor, at least down to about age 18 or so, the better. So once we get above 40, the quality of the donor and the outcomes are generally just less good. And certainly when we're above the age of 60, the outcomes with the donor being more than 60-year-old, the outcome is less good. Then we look at, obviously, the blood. There has to be a blood group match with the donor and the recipient. And we look at size match, and it's still somewhat questionable about how to do the size matching most effectively. Many people feel by height is the best. Body weight is probably not very accurate, but body mass or heart mass, an estimation of heart mass, we now use. Usually if the heart mass of the donor is at least 70% of the recipient, that's a good sign. If it's less than 70, the predicted heart mass less than 70%, that's probably a concern that the heart may not be large enough. If the recipient has some pulmonary hypertension, then you'd like to have a slightly larger heart than you would ordinarily. So those, I think, are all the things. Now, we often take hearts that are are less than adequate. Part of that would be how much less than adequate is it. If the heart is in a very large donor and the cardiac output is great and it looks like the EF is 45%, then I think that would be a heart you would really strongly consider taking. The other things that factor in is what will be the ischemic time? How far away is the heart? So what does the donor heart look like? How far away is the heart? How much ischemic time will you have? What is the age of the donor? And then is there any underlying coronary disease? One of the things we all worry about the most is contusions. People who've been in motor vehicle accidents, whether or not there's a right ventricular contusion and what does the right ventricle look like? Sometimes we can't tell that until we actually visualize the heart and they get ready to take it out. But I think it's not an exact science. So all the things we think about are obviously there has to be a blood group match, which we generally will not be called about until we have that. And then I think a size match. And um, you'd like to have other things be better if there's any significant dysfunction in the heart. But certainly in today's world, we often take hearts that not, are not entirely normal. We rarely take a heart where the ejection fraction is below 35%. On the topic of donors and some of the ways to expand the donor pool, there's been a lot of excitement this year about the different methods that we've used. Here at Vanderbilt, we've worked hard to use hep C positive hearts, but we also worked with ex vivo perfusion and now the DCD program. Can you talk a little bit about these new strategies to kind of expand the donor pool? 
it's really important to expand the donor pool because heart transplant, although it has some flaws, is, uh, really delivers a good quality of life for most people for a fair period of time. So we'd like very much to expand the donor pool. We know that it's extremely limited. Uh, the use of hepatitis C hearts, I think now, which many people have done, and uh, we've done well over 80 now and just reported that uh, Kelly Schlendorf just reported in the JAMA cardiology that our results look quite similar to our results in patients who did not get a hepatitis C donor. So looks like very good outcomes. Virtually all of these patients who are NAT positive, who have active viremia, will develop hepatitis C in the minute that they do, which is usually within 10 days post-transplant. We apply for therapy and begin to treat them, and we are treating them earlier and earlier in their course. And they really seem to do quite well. Now, in Tennessee, we're in an area where there's a hotbed of the opioid crisis, which goes hand-in-hand with hepatitis C. So we have more donors in our region than many people do. But I think for some time, it will be a source of of really good donors. The the so-called heart-in-a-box, the transmedics device, for resuscitating donors that look less good, certainly uh, is likely to ultimately provide us with a fair number of donors. It certainly has already in lung transplantation. It is being used quite effectively. We have early results, which we think are good. Part of the problem, of course, is we see that heart the way we evaluate that heart is with a lactate in this perfused system. And that has worked fairly well, but whether or not that will be the best measure, I think we don't know yet. It would be great to really be able to see the heart work, to see what the right ventricle does. So that brings us to patients who have DCD donors or donation from cardiac death. Those are patients who are not actually brain dead, unlike the usual donors we get who have been declared brain dead. Those people die without brain death. And that's been a controversial but important policy developed primarily, I think, in England and Australia, where in both populations they have a number of DCD donors. And it's a little bit difficult to organize. And in various countries, the duration of what qualifies, how long does the heart have to be stopped before you can actually take the organ. It varies from two minutes to 20 minutes in various countries. So that's sort of difficult. So that's valuable. In Australia, they take those donors and they often transport them because Australia is a big country on the, with ex vivo perfusion, and they've had good results with that. There's also a new technique that's interesting that sounds a bit unusual at first, but it is allowing circulatory death and then resuscitating the patient with the heart intact and externalizing the cerebral circulation so that there is no longer cerebral circulation, so that the patient becomes brain dead, but the DCD donor heart remains in the donor. And then you can evaluate the donor potentially with hemodynamics. You can look at the RV, you can look at the LV. In addition to biomarkers, such as lactate, you can look at a number of other things. And this is, again, the Papworth started this, but it's being used now in a number of places, and people are really starting to think, is this the way of really evaluating these hearts and expanding the DCD donor pool? So I think All three of these are exciting. Certainly the hepatitis C has already provided us with a large number of hearts, and that will for some time to come, but that will will eventually go away, hopefully, as we prevent the transmission of hepatitis C in the general population. But I think just as it has with lung, we will learn more about resuscitating some hearts, and we'll learn also much more about how to do uh, DCD hearts. I think that's likely to expand the donor pool substantially. All of these innovations that you 
talk about are incredibly exciting. And from everything you've said, it's clear that the entire selection process, whether recipient or, or donor selection, not only is it hugely important, but is it requires really an army of, of meticulous clinicians who all have to work together to gather all of the right information and make sure sort of that we're allocating organs appropriately. So let's switch gears now from the selection process and uh, talk about how to manage these patients who have finally received their new heart. Let's start with the immediate transplant period, so in the first 30 days of transplantation. Yeah, the first 30 days, I think right now the, the major concern for most patients is, is primary graft dysfunction, where you put the heart in and it just doesn't work. And that seems to be increasing somewhat recently. You know, it's we've all had the sense that patients who go have an LVAD explanted to get their heart transplant have a little bit of more of graft dysfunction. But that has been reported from the UNOS database to not be the case. And then we know that, for instance, amiodarone is associated with more primary graft dysfunction. So I think now we struggle a little bit with, and it seems to be dose-related, so now we struggle a little bit with how do we at least lower amiodarone doses uh, in potential recipients to prevent graft dysfunction. And then graft dysfunction remains a problem basically forever. As it gets out later post-transplant, we worry that much, much graft dysfunction is probably underlying coronary allograft vasculopathy. But graft dysfunction is number one. Infection is high multi-organ failure, which is, is a separate category but is often due to graft dysfunction. Those are all the very early typical post-operative problems. Rejection is a problem, but really in today's world, it is quite rare to have a patient die of cellular rejection. Vascular rejection can be more of a problem when it occurs, but it's it's much less common, I think, than cellular rejection. So the incidence of cellular rejection is much less now. And while it is a, a, a cause of death early on, it's not the most common cause of death at all. So patients face the usual postoperative graft dysfunction, multi-organ failure, renal dysfunction, but that usually goes with graft dysfunction and multi-organ function. And then rejection is much less of a problem. What about for the first year, five to 10 years? What's different in the first year versus 10 years out from a heart transplant for complications? The major complications going forward after the first year, rejection becomes much less of a problem. Sometimes we'll see vascular rejection, usually often when people have uh, donor-specific antibodies, but not always. It's a it's a rejection against the coronary vascular endothelium, and that's quite a serious problem. And if a patient has a serious episode of vascular rejection, they almost never recover completely, and then very often we see coronary allograft vasculopathy following that. But for the majority of patients, I think the major problems are just the accumulation of disease. Perhaps the number one problem now is coronary allograft vasculopathy, which rarely occurs in the first year, but can, and becomes more severe. And at five years, and ten, at 10 years particularly, we see it in 50% of people, although not all those people require transplantation. Rejection, again, is less of a problem. Infections go down after the first year or two. Renal failure is a problem. And then malignancy, particularly in older people, becomes an important source of problem, important source of morbidity and mortality the farther out you go from transplantation. I think it, it's interesting that in younger people, the most common problems are rejection and coronary allograft vasculopathy, and in older people, they become renal failure and malignancy. Graft dysfunction is a problem throughout, but there's a difference in younger people and older people suggesting that we, we probably need a bit more immunosuppression in younger people and perhaps a bit less in older people. Now, it's I think it's important, too. One of the things that's been underappreciated is the 
contribution of all of our normal risk factors and the contribution of the immunosuppressive drugs to morbidity post-transplant. So we know that all the major morbidities post-transplant, such as hypertension and renal dysfunction and bone disease and malignancies, are all related in some way to immunosuppressive drugs. There's been some data recently that because we detach the nerves from the heart, we probably see more non-dipping status in the blood pressure in these patients, and that probably indicates also a longer-term mortality. So what's really interesting is we've thought in the past these contribute, but perhaps not as much as immunologic factors. Immunologic factors certainly are important and clear, but I think it's also likely that we'll be paying a bit more attention in the near future to some of these other comorbidities that are directly caused by immunosuppressive drugs. Given all these risks over those period of time, what is the current average life expectancy of a transplant patient? Well, it's pretty good. You know, it's gotten a little bit better, not huge leaps and jumps with the calcineurin inhibitors, cyclosporinin program. It got a lot better. And then since then, it's improved a little bit each year, but not a huge amount, but just a little bit. So right now, if one looks across the world, the average operative mortality, 30-day mortality, is between 10 and 15%. In the larger, better centers, it's well less than 10% in the big centers. If one survives the first year, then the average mortality is right around 3 to 3.4% per year after that. So if you survive the first year, the average person lives 13 years, but that's a little bit different in younger people. It's better in younger people than older people. So it, it's gotten to be pretty good, pretty good. Lastly, what is it you would want the non-transplant cardiologist to know about the immunosuppression medications and the care of these patients post-transplant? I think the single most important thing for non-transplant physicians to understand is there's a lot of drug-drug interactions with these drugs, particularly with the calcineurin inhibitors. And so that when you add a new drug, we really like to be involved in any new drug in order to be sure that the patient doesn't experience an adverse event from drug-drug reactions. For instance, I think perhaps Right now, the most important one is the interaction of all of the statins with the calcineurin inhibitors. And we know that for a patient who is on a calcineurin inhibitor, that the dose of the statins is recommended doses are much, much less to avoid rhabdomyolysis, which is a hundredfold more common in transplant recipients than in the non-transplant population, just because of these drug-drug interactions. So I think those are the single most important things. We don't use uh, azathioprine much anymore, but when we do perhaps one of the single most devastating drug-drug interactions is that between imuran and allopurinol, which leads to marked bone marrow depression. So there are a number of drug-drug interactions, which, which is the reason we like to know about any new drugs being added to prevent those adverse events. I think that's really useful information for both cardiologists and non-cardiologists out there to know. Um, as we continue to find ways to expand the donor pool, the population of patients with heart transplants will just continue to grow. And so of course, these folks will need medical care for all of their non-cardiology issues, so that's really helpful. And with that, uh, we will conclude our segment. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Linenfeld, for a highly germane overview of the heart transplantation process and how to really take care of these patients. I think the three of us can agree that it's truly an exciting uh, time to be part of such an evolving, life-saving field. I have one last question for you, Dr. Linenfeld. Tell us, what makes your heart flutter? about taking care of heart failure patients? I think that, um, well, there's two things. One, it's being an institution where I get to work with people like you and Jess is enormously fun. And it's just, it never it never gets old to be able to help people get better. That just never, I don't think, ever gets old. So it's just a privilege to do it. And 
to be here in this room with two of my favorite people. Thank you so much, Dr. Lindenfeld, for your time and expertise. It's been a joy talking to you today and learning from you over the past few years. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. Thank <laughs> you.